Good morning, WordServe. As we, uh, this is Pastor John, and as we finish up our Unshakable series, um, we finish today with evangelism. And so I'm going to share a little bit about uh, what evangelism is and why it's important, and um, I hope you will enjoy this journey with me. I want to start with a story. Uh, many years ago, I was a summer youth director in a place called Quana, Texas. If you're familiar with Quana, Texas, uh, it is a distinguished place um, kind of northwest of Wichita Falls, so way up in kind of the central west part of Texas. And I was there during a very hot summer. And uh, as a youth director, uh, we have the joy of seeing kids uh, engage in spiritual formation and learn about Christ and learn the Word of God and struggle with things of the church. And uh, it was on one occasion, a Saturday, where we had a retreat out at a state park. And there were several churches there that came together. And we were all gathered together in that state park. We played games. We um, chatted, had small groups. We had a special speaker who was an older student from Texas Tech. I actually knew him. And um, uh, it was pr towards the very last of the day. It was getting dark. We had a bonfire going. All the kids were sitting around the bonfire, and the special speaker was standing there in front. And so you can imagine the flickering of the fire and, and the backlit speaker and him telling his, his uh, testimony and sharing his story. And one of the things that struck me was he said this. He said, I, the first time I had to share my faith was when I was a youth director. And, and I just remember in that moment, sitting there, enjoying this wonderful moment, and, and I have in my head this thought, I hope I never have to share my faith as a youth director. I hope that doesn't happen to me. And, and that may seem strange for a youth director to say that or for a pastor to say that, but remember, I was really young and uh, didn't know a whole lot about ministry, wasn't... Um, very far in my walk with God, uh, just kind of learning and growing and, and testing the waters of ministry. And that thought, I hope I never have to do that, uh, came out of this strange understanding of what evangelism was. So my worries were, um, I don't know the special formula. I don't, I don't know the Bible verses to walk them through. I don't know the right words. I don't know the right process. What if I got it wrong? I mean, the pressure of a soul depending on me um, in order to have this grand entrance into the kingdom of God and give their life to Christ. I mean, all of that was um, very heavy on my heart at the time, created a lot of anxiety for me. Um, but all of those thoughts came out of a misunderstanding of what evangelism really was. And many of us have that same misunderstanding. And to say the word evangelism may frighten us because of the images we have whether it's uh, somebody, you know, uh, holding a Bible and offering condemnations along with spiritual verses uh, from Scripture, um, telling people how horrible they are and they're going to hell and all that stuff, or, or people saying repent and, and uh, believe or you're going to hell, you know, that old adage, uh, what's your eternal preference, smoking or non, right? Um, or uh, somebody sitting down with you and walking through a pamphlet that has the four spiritual laws and outlines a process. And then at the end of it, you say the magical prayer that takes you into the kingdom of God, right? Um, or even knocking on doors. We, we see people knocking on doors and asking questions. You know, what is your faith like? Where are you? Are you connected to a church? Have you given your life to Christ? And if not, let's talk about that. 
And so all of these ideas of evangelism we have, um, even, even televangelists, right, with their nice hair and nice jets and houses and helicopters, oh my goodness, we could go on and on about that, right? Um, but all of these images that we have of evangelism uh, sometimes keep us and prevent us from experiencing God's grace in the midst of sharing our faith. And so what I hope during this time is that we might come to a, a fuller, deeper understanding of what it means to uh, share our faith. Um, and we're going to do that in kind of a roundabout way. But first, it may be helpful to talk about what evangelism is not. And so as I share my screen, uh, we can come to this. Uh, what evangelism is not? Evangelism is not denominational programming, right? It's not a... Um, uh, a structure above the local church saying, hey, let's engage in this. Um, it's helpful. Um, restructuring is helpful. Uh, moving churches is helpful. All of that stuff is helpful, but it's not in and of itself evangelism. Or inviting people to church. Many of us think, well, if I just invite my friend to church, they're struggling, um, they'll give their life to Christ and everything will be okay. And we'll talk a little bit about that later, um, some of these other things as well. Um, imposing our beliefs on others, right? This is where we get the idea of this is what you should believe. And if you don't, you're wrong. And uh, uh, that's, that's a tough place to be. Or what about personal testimony, right? Sharing our story. And that is a part of evangelism, but in and of itself, it's not complete. And so uh, we'll talk a little bit about that as well. One that we see today is the emphasis on social work and political activism. Um, we see that in our society today. We see that in our churches today. And even though this can help, it is in and of itself is not evangelism either. Apologetics, meaning uh, uh, providing a defense. Apology is a defense. Uh, defense of the faith in order to win an argument. That's not evangelism. And church planting, believe it or not, uh, is not evangelism. And so all of these things put together um, may be a part of evangelism. Individually, they may be a part of evangelism, but in and of themselves, these are not um, uh, in and of themselves what evangelism is. So let's look at um, the next thing. What is evangelism? Evangelism, the word actually comes from the Greek word euangelion. Um, euangelion uh, literally means good news. And we see it in the ancient world used a lot to proclaim something good about somebody, right? We see it in the Roman world. Um, uh, right before Jesus' day, we see an inscription to Caesar Augustus that read this, um, yada, 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 the birthday of the God, meaning Caesar, was the beginning of the good news that came through him to the world, right? So the ancient understanding of euangelion or good news was, proclaiming the good news that has effect for the world around us. And in the New Testament, of course, euangelion uh, refers to the good news of God's anointed, who is Jesus Christ. It's a pronouncement of divine intervention in worldly affairs. So this is Jesus is on the scene. Jesus is God in flesh. Um, this is the good news. Yes, the Romans may think it's Caesar, but no, it's Jesus right? So um, uh, in a way that impacts the world significantly. So that is what the word evangelism comes from. Now let's 
look at a few quotes because uh, throughout the ages, we may see that people have defined it in ways that may help us, right? Martin Luther, the great reformer back in the 1500s, um, says this, it is the duty of every Christian to be Christ to his neighbor. Um, this is uh, Elton Trueblood, a, a well-known preacher back in the day before my time. Um, he said this, evangelism is not a professional job for a few trained men or women, but is instead the unrelenting responsibility of every person who belongs to the company of Jesus. Becky Pippert is one who had profound influence on me when I was in college, reading her books um, out of the salt shaker. Uh, she says this about evangelism. If you live by the same values and priorities Jesus had, you will find evangelism happening, happening naturally. It becomes a lifestyle and not a project. And C.S. Lewis, uh, everybody loves C.S. Lewis, one of the great apologists of our times, defenders of the faith. And he says this, the church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ powerful statement about what evangelism is and what the role of church is with evangelism. And then my personal favorite is this, it comes from uh, Daniel T. Niles, um, an Indian uh, evangelist and missionary and preacher. He says this, evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Now, I love that image. I love that image. Why? Because all of us have to eat. All of us get hungry at some time. And how many times in, in the past year have, have you referred someone else to a place to eat, right? I mean, Taco Bueno is opening up. How many times have I heard about that? Five million times because I love Taco Bueno. And so um, you think about our faith as one beggar, the humility that's involved in that, right? Saying, yeah, we all stand in need. Telling another beggar, someone in the exact same shoes as we are, yet is without bread, telling them where to find that bread. So a really powerful image for me, and one that uh, is a good reminder that in this place that we call evangelism and sharing our faith, uh, there is a lot of humility that comes with that, of who we are in God's place. Uh, but I really want to start in a place that uh, may be uh, very unlikely. It may seem unlikely for most of us. And that place is John chapter 3. Nicodemus was a Jewish leader who came uh, to Jesus uh, in kind of the, the dark of the night. He was afraid publicly to inquire of Jesus about his preaching and, and what he came to do. And uh, we have this interaction uh, in most of the chapter of John chapter 3 that leads into some very famous quotes from Jesus, but also into some powerful imagery. Um, and, and we're going to start with that at verse 1. There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again. Now, I want you to count how many times a reference to being born is here. And in, and in this particular instance, some um, um, uh, Bibles may read born from above. Um, the concept is the same. It's the same word translated in different ways. And so born again or born from above. 
uh, has the exact same meaning in, in the Greek New Testament. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Oh, what do you mean? exclaims Nicodemus. How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to the spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again or born from above. And then he goes on to make this explanation about how difficult it is to understand these things. The wind blows where it wants, just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from or where it is going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. How are these things possible, Nicodemus asked. Jesus replied, you are a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand these things? I assure you, we tell you what we know and have seen and yet you won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven and returned. And he's getting at here uh, just kind of emphasis on understanding heavenly things. Nobody has gone up to heaven uh, from earth so they, and returned to be able to explain the heavenly things. But then he goes on to say, but the Son of Man, meaning himself, has come down from heaven. And because of that, Jesus is able to explain the heavenly spiritual things from above. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up on a cross so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For this is how God um, loved the world. He gave his one and only, and the word in Greek there is begotten son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life and after this the conversation continues but we're going to stop there and it then goes into what is the water of life and all of this stuff with um, the woman at the well and and just a, a powerful segue into remarkable and influential images of who jesus is and um, for now, we're just going to stop right there. Why? Because this concept of new birth is powerful when we talk about evangelism. We need to know what it means to be renewed in the image of Christ. And so um, new birth uh, really involves two things. In the ancient days, it involved the renewal of all things. And we see this in the ancient Greek world. Um, they referred to it as uh, a cosmic new birth, that there's a rebirth of the universe, which includes all souls. Um, some saw it as a restoration of life of individuals and the reconstitution of the world after the flood in Moses' day. Um, Josephus, a Jewish historian, writes uh, from a kind of a Greek standpoint, he writes um, that uh, the new birth, this cosmic new birth, is the reestablishment of Israel after the exile. And so there was already in the day of Jesus this language talking about new birth as this cosmic new birth that happens to bring renewal to all things and especially to God's people. We see it um, in Isaiah in uh, two places in particular, Isaiah 65 and 66 where Isaiah in his prophecy, uh, God talks about a hope of a new heaven and a new earth. And he says, look, I am creating new heavens and a new earth. And he goes on to describe that 
and what that means for the followers of God. We find in the New Testament, in a book called Revelation, where uh, uh, it's, it's kind of God's vision for how all of this is going to be summed up, echoes of Isaiah. In Revelation 21, we see this vision of a new heaven and a new earth coming down from above. And then God saying, look, I am making everything new. And so this, this idea of a cosmic new birth, it represents a moral transformation of the world um, accomplished by the power of God. And so um, when we talk about new birth, we have to keep in mind that it's not just about the personal transformation, but about the wider reality of God's created order coming into a place that again reflects his glory and is not there yet today. So it represents a moral transformation of the world order accomplished by the power of God. The other concept associated with new birth is being born from above. Um, and this is the personal transformation part. Uh, in John 3, which we just read, this conversation of Nicodemus and Jesus, Jesus, um, Jesus mentions born again and born from above. Uh, both of those are the same Greek word translated either way. Um, but he also mentions being born of the water and spirit. Um, Jesus says, uh, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again, born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Um, and then he talks about being born of the water and spirit and what that means. And this is important because in the Old Testament, um, both water and spirit are symbols of God's renewing. It's the, these are symbols of God's uh, life-giving activity. And oftentimes when there is a description of the outpouring renewal of God, you have both the spirit of God involved, but also um, water happening. And we see that in Pentecost, of course, with the spirit coming down, filling the believers and what happens, they're baptized, right? So you have that imagery rich in the Old Testament already. And one passage that speaks to that is the prophet Ezekiel, uh, when um, God is promising restoration for the people of God, he says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. And we see echoes of this all over the New Testament, and it kind of bleeds into the New, uh, New Testament in a way that when Jesus speaks of these things, the, the Jews in that day would have understood. Yeah, water and spirit, um, it's not a fleshly birth. It's a kingdom of heaven renewal that happens within us. And so the water and spirit understood together as one conceptual unit means that um, in this birth, one shares in the nature of God as spirit through the life-giving activity of the Holy Spirit. And in some ways, it sets us apart from a fleshly birth. And it means that there is discontinuity with our own fleshly existence. And so um, essential to the understanding of a new birth is this very thing, is that natural growth and development will not suffice. And so if we, if we just leave it without any sort of spiritual growth in our lives, um, we're just humans, and the natural growth and development does not suffice for us to grow spiritually. And so we have to work amidst this discontinuity in order to be renewed in the image of God day in and day out in a, in a way that brings that kingdom of God into us um, over and over again.
Uh, we drink from the water. We drink from the water. We drink from the water because God's spirit continually renews us. We think uh, transformation at the deepest levels. Um, he says, I tell you the truth. This is John chapter five. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. And you think about the prodigal son. Jesus talks about the prodigal son who left his father and took his inheritance and squandered it and came back poor and destitute and desperate. And uh, the father runs out to get him. And his comment was to the older son who was jealous of that. He's, he says, the father says to the son, realize he was dead and is alive again. And so when we talk about this new birth, being born from above, being born again, we're talking about a fundamental change in a person, but also a new origin and source of life for that person. Right? So this is what it means, in essence. The Old Testament and the New Testament both speak of a coming day when God would restore his kingdom and Jesus would sit on the throne of glory. Jesus spoke of this coming kingdom of God as a present reality. He said, um, the kingdom of God is at hand through Jesus. The future invades the presence. And because of that, when we say yes to Jesus, guess what? We experience the new life something being born anew in us through the power of God's spirit that makes us a new creature. And that's the reality of God's inbreaking. So what does all that mean for us? Why is that important for us? Well, in essence, here's what it says. Um, evangelism is not a transaction between humans, even though it involves human interaction. Evangelism is a disclosing, making known, introducing, bringing two parties together, right? And inviting another lost child. And I, and I say lost child there because they are created in the image of God and they don't know it. They don't know who their heavenly father is. And a lost child is someone who's wandering around still looking for the purpose and meaning of their life. You could put human there. You could put person there. You could put future um, uh, ambassador of God, whatever. But um, it's a disclosing, introducing, inviting another lost child of God into a whole new world of existence. And when talking about um, what it means to be born anew with even a religious leader who knows all of these images from the Old Testament coming into Jesus' language about being born from above, uh, even he couldn't understand it. And Jesus mentions that. It's kind of like this. Um, someone stands at the edge of a pool and says, hey, I want to get in, but I'm not real sure. Um, what is it like to be wet? How do you describe what it's like to be wet? How would you describe that? In some ways, it's indescribable. And you can't fully know until you actually take a step into the water to get wet. So evangelism, um, when we come to the idea of sharing our faith, realize there's a disconnect between the powerful work of God and our human inability to truly convey what it's about. And so it leaves us at, at a pretty humbling place, right? 
how do we share our faith? Well, I want to offer a few um, ideas when we talk about sharing our faith. And I've, I've just put this, what can I do? Meaning, um, what can I do in this strange world of sharing our faith and what we call sharing the good news? And one is, I can live in that new life. Right? It's, it's not good enough just to have come to Christ once. Many years ago, yesterday, a week ago, God calls us to um, not just jump into the pool, but to swim around in it and enjoy it, splash around, have fun in it. And when we just jump in and jump out and then go on with our life, we miss a, a beautiful thing that God has in store for us. And so when it comes time to share our faith, we're going to be at a disadvantage because we haven't been. What, what is it like to get wet? Man, I, I knew that one time, that 20 years ago when I jumped in that pool, I knew that. But now, man, what was it like? The other thing is to trust God's spirit. Here's what I'll say with that. If there is a prompting in your soul to share with somebody uh, something about God, then I guarantee you there is a stirring in the other that needs to hear it. Let me say that again. If there is a prompting in your soul to share your faith, I guarantee you there is a stirring in another in order to hear it. God is at work in us, calling us beyond ourselves. God is at work in others in order for them to receive that good news and to hear it, right? Another thing is to share your story. Um, no one can discount your experience. It is yours. It's not mine. It's uh, not Pastor Bill's. It's not Clayton's. It's not Barbara's. It, it is your story. How did you jump into that pool? How did you get wet? What brought you to that place of saying yes? What was it like? What were the circumstances around that? Everybody has a unique story as unique as the fingerprints on the face of this planet. And because of that, God is going to use that in a powerful way to uniquely share his love and grace with somebody else that needs to hear it. So share your story. Another one is commit to authentic relationships. A lot of Christians don't realize this, but um, uh, only about 7% of people who come to faith do so from a church service or a pastor. Isn't that horrible? It is when you think of it in just in terms of a pastor or a church service. But what we know is that over 80% of people who come to faith in Christ and give their life to Christ, that jump into that pool for the very first time, do so because of a close relationship they have with another person. Now think about that. Isn't that powerful? That means, um, going back to one of the quotes, it's not up to the professional people. Yeah, we do our part as best we can. Uh, yes, we help others um, learn how to share their faith. We encourage them and lead them. But by and large, those who are willing to take a step of faith will do so through a relationship with you. And so the best thing you can offer them is an authentic relationship. 
And lastly, uh, be bold. Be bold. Be willing to take a risk. I encourage people when I, when I train pastors, and uh, believe it or not, pastors are often, uh, especially young pastors, uh, figuring out ministry and navigating the complexities of what it means to be in ministry and all the relationships that are involved in that. Um, uh, it can be a tough time to be vulnerable with who you really are in Christ. And so I always encourage, in, in the very first meeting I have mentoring young pastors, um, take one step beyond your comfort. Just take one step beyond your comfort. And we count that as being bold. And so in sharing your faith, um, all of us, I, what can I do? We can be bold. What does that mean? Does that mean I have to go fly to Africa and become a missionary? No, that just means take one step beyond what you feel comfortable with. So you're in line at a grocery store and you strike up a conversation with somebody and you can tell, man, they're having a rough time. And in your mind, you feel that stirring and you want to trust God's spirit. And so what do you do? You say, hey, so how are you with God in all of this? And I guarantee you, God will take over. Or maybe it's um, a, a coworker having a difficult day and and in, in the midst of a conversation, you just send them an email and say, hey, I want you to know I'm, I'm praying for you. If there's anything I can pray specifically for you, would you let me know? Um, that's being bold, right? Simple, small steps beyond what we feel comfortable with. That's being bold. And if, we, if everybody did all of these, right? Live in a new life, trust God's spirit, share your story, commit to authentic relationships and, and being bold, meaning taking a step beyond what we're comfortable with, what would happen? We'll see the beauty of God's message being proclaimed in powerful ways that transcends any sort of understanding or image we have of evangelism. And I love this quote uh, from Isaiah. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring what? Good news. Who proclaim peace. Who bring good tidings. Who proclaim salvation. Who say to Zion, meaning the, the capital of Israel, Jerusalem, your God reigns. So it was... Um, a strange night many years ago in Aquana, Texas at the state park with my youth and a speaker saying the first time I shared my faith was when I was a youth director. And that thought coming up into me, oh, I hope that never happens to me. Well, that retreat ended and I went home uh, in Aquana, Texas. My home was the old parsonage, uh, wood frame, wood boarded parsonage, um, with a, uh, a humidifier uh, for an air conditioner, right? Um, and um, I went home to that and sat down on the couch. And I kid you not, within minutes, there's a knock on my door. And I go to the door and Mr. Fisher from next door introduces himself. And the first words out of his mouth are, are you the preacher guy from the Methodist church? And I said, well, kind of, I'm not a preacher, but I'm a youth director. And he said, I need Jesus to save me. Now you can imagine um, what's going in my mind. God, I prayed that this would never happen, right? And here it is happening. And I invited him in and I had no clue what to say. 
I had no clue what to ask, but I just said a small prayer and I said, um, Mr. Fisher, tell me what's going on. And he started to pour out his soul. And um, we prayed together and he experienced the light of God in a way um, that people do when they come to faith. Um, it's as if they had been longing to jump into the pool of eternal water and they now experience it and they're like, man, why didn't I do this sooner? He left that night and then the next morning um, I got up and um, prepared to go to church, went next door. Um, Mr. Fisher uh, was dressed to a tee in a suit that he probably hadn't worn in decades. And uh, we drove down to church together. And um, we walked into the sanctuary for worship and uh, people were absolutely astonished. Jaws hit the floor, necks were turning, you know, doing a rubberneck thing. <laughs> They were astonished because Mr. Fisher was known as a town drunk. And here he is coming into the sanctuary of God to find that holy water that he'd longed for. I don't know what I said that night. Honestly, I don't. I don't know what transpired between him and God, but let me tell you, there was a stirring in his soul. And the Spirit of God met him. And I learned my lesson. Evangelism is really not that hard. It's just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Word serve nation. Just want to encourage you. Share your faith. Share the bread. Invite people to jump in that water because it's life-altering. Have a great week, and God bless.